Daniel Brothers, this is Didact with another episode of the uh, Domain Query, and this time we're back with another uh, Ask Didact Anything day. This is uh, number three, and a very warm welcome to all of my longtime readers from the site. A very warm welcome to all of my longtime listeners here on Podbean. Uh, be sure to like, comment, share, and subscribe. If you have not subscribed already, please make sure you do so. That way you will never miss another post. You'll never miss another podcast. And for those of you who are on Telegram, please make sure to check out the Telegram channel itself. It is a private channel, so it's invitation only. Well, not invitation only, but you can only join through a specific link. Uh, and, you know, it's just a, a great place to go for uh, banter and interaction between various members of the Didactic Mind community. We're at 125 members right now. It's been pretty stable uh, for a while, but we've got a core of about 10 or so people who interact regularly with me and with each other. And it's a great crowd. And in, indeed, these are the people who have submitted all of the questions uh, and from whom, well, almost all of the questions, and from whom we've gotten some very, very good uh, you know, uh, queries that I will endeavor to answer today. So we've got a series of, uh, how many questions? Let's see, one, uh, six or seven, I think. Uh, seven, yeah, uh, I believe. Anyway, we'll see as we go along. But um, we've got uh, one link sent to me from a long-time reader and then a bunch of questions related to the posts that I will get to shortly. So uh, for those of you who don't have never heard one of these before, it is essentially my version of phoning it in. Uh, <laughs> our beloved and dreaded Supreme Dark Lord, peace be unto him, Voxamort, the most malevolent and terrible, uh, likes to call these his uh, stupid question day, which is essentially his equivalent to phoning it in on the dark streams. Uh, I do not quite go that far because the questions I get asked are very intelligent, but it is kind of that same vibe where, you know, you can't be asked to think of a proper topic to discuss, but you know you need to do a podcast anyway, so you might as well do one. Uh, but actually... In all honesty, the, the questions I get asked here are, are actually quite complex and deep. So let's dive straight into it. And the first question comes from longtime reader and friend of the site, Aunt Rat. And he or she, I can't quite tell what it is, but what the gender of this person is. But uh, Aunt Rat asked, uh, sent me a post from the, Z, um, the Z-Man or the Z-Man. I'm going to say the Z-Man because Z is the correct pronunciation. Uh, but it, it, it's from the Z-Man and he posted... I know the Z-Man is male because of the way he writes, but anyway. Uh, it's a post related to the Banderistan War about the advent of non-human or robotic technology in warfare. And it's a very good post. And it talks about the way in which... The technologies we're seeing, particularly with respect to drone and autonomous technologies in Banderistan, herald a new way of war, uh, remote control, robotic, high-tech way of war, where the human element seems to be missing in very large measure. Uh, 
And it seems to be a quite a horrifying new way of war. And I understand why it seems horrifying. So the examples given throughout the Z Man's post come down to things like automated machine gun posts, which the NATO um, guys are using to test out these new technologies against the Russians. The drone swarms the Russians themselves are using against armor and infantry, increasingly against infantry now, where you've got these you know, cheap couple hundred dollar drones with grenades uh, fixed to them, or even artillery shells, light artillery shells fixed to them. You know, these drones fly over an enemy position, drop a grenade or an artillery round, and it explodes and takes out, you know, four or five uh, infantry. Uh, you've got FPV drones where the the uh, driver of the drone wears a pair of wears basically a VR headset. Uh, the first person view drone uh, has a connection directly to a console held by the uh, by the uh, drone operator, and he sees as though he is the drone. It's it's almost as if it's his physical body moving through space. But of course, he's sitting in one place, and the drone itself is the thing that's moving. And there's clip after clip after clip after clip on Telegram showing these drones flying uh, along, spotting an enemy vehicle and then smashing into it and blowing it up. Uh, Much more so on the Russian side than on the Ukrainian side, meaning the Russians are doing much more of this to the Ukrainians than the Ukrainians are to the Russians. But it's happening on both sides. There's no doubt or question about that fact. If you look at Ukrainian Telegram channels, you will see lots of examples of Ukrainian FPV drones flying into Russian hardware. If you look at Russian telegram channels, you will see lots of examples of Lancet strikes. The Lancet is a particularly devastating weapon. Uh, The idea of a suicide drone did not, to my knowledge, originate with the Russians. It actually originated with the Americans, uh, with the switchblade. But Unlike the Russian stuff, the American stuff doesn't work because, you know, honestly, generally speaking, American weapons aren't very good. They're designed to make a profit. They're not designed to work in real-world conditions. Whereas Russian weapons, as a general rule, are designed to function under very hard and heavy use and are practical, efficient, well-designed means of killing. And the latest Lancets are fully networked and largely autonomous. These are now swarms of Lancet drones that go out there and have artificial intelligence programming built into them such that they can spot a target and choose whether or not it's worth plinking. Uh, There's nowhere to hide from these drone swarms. The Russians have improved substantially on the uh, original Geranium 2 design, uh, Giran as they call it, uh, which has a very strong resemblance to the Iranian Shahid uh, or Martyr or Witness drone, uh, which is a very cheap explosive drone, which it's essentially a flying wing with an explosive core in it and some sort of fuel like kerosene with a two-stroke motor piston, um, moped motor really. Uh, they're called mopeds for precisely that reason, because of that characteristic two-stroke sound that they, they make when they're flying along. The Russians, <laughs> they've improved substantially on this drone. The real, I'll get to the reason why I'm cracking up. It's, it's actually really funny. 
the Russians have improved substantially on this drone by painting it jet black, <laughs> giving it a, a turbojet engine. So <laughs> the moment I saw it, um, <laughs> the moment I saw the post about that, I said, I call them uh, geranikers. Um, and then Supreme Cannon, who, who posted uh, several questions in the chat, uh, came up with an even better name, uh, Tyroniums. <laughs> I just lost it. <laughs> Every time I see that, I just crack up. <laughs> these, these black, <laughs> these black geraniums are now, now built using, uh, using like composite, fully, you know, fiberglass composites. Um, <laughs> painted black, and they now have a much quieter turbojet engine, and therefore have a much longer range and much more speed, much more power when they hit. The Russians are now deploying these in active combat. So we are seeing, in fact, rapid advancements in the field of robotics and uh, ro robot technology in the field of, in, in the scope and scale of this war. In fact, the Russians are going beyond this. There is now uh, a, an autonomous drone helicopter under development called the Termit, uh, Termite. And uh, you know what? I'll, there's a telegram, there's a series of telegram posts on this one, uh, which is, is all about how, yeah, here we go. The Russian Termit drone, the MPD-01 Termit, it's a combat helicopter-type drone, got a speed of a, up to 150 kilometers per hour, uh, an altitude of up to 3.5 kilometers, can fly up to six hours, has a payload of 450 kilos, and a combat radius of up to 300 kilometers. And its payload consists of SAL laser-guided missiles with a range of six kilometers. Now, these things are essentially tank hunters. They, they have um, artificial intelligence programmed into them. They are free-ranging, and they can go out there, hunt down enemy armor, enemy fortifications, and infantry, and kill them. With a human sitting safely behind enemy lines guiding them. This is indeed a very ominous development in the field of war. And it does dehumanize warfare substantially. In the same way that World War I uh, really completely shifted the paradigm of uh, how wars were fought, because prior to World War I, prior to the Great War, the concept of war really consisted of massed infantry attacks. Um, artillery was important, yes, but it involved blowing great gaping holes into serial waves of infantry moving forward in orderly formations. Uh, that was first generation war. Second generation war was massed artillery attacks in which you saw a lot of that happening in World War I and it completely dehumanized much of the war. I mean, it resulted in trench warfare, in attrition on a truly just industrial scale. Uh, it, it was it was horrifying to the human mind, and it was very dehumanizing. It it, it was it, like you were just throwing men into the meat grinders of the Western Front and especially the Eastern Front, actually, 
As bad as the Western Front was, I assure you that the horror of the Eastern Front was greater. And it resulted in millions upon millions of deaths in just carnage and slaughter where you couldn't even see your enemy. As bad as war has always been, up until the 20th century, generally speaking, you could see the guy who wanted to kill you. And there's really good explanation of the psychological impact of this change in war fighting and war methodology in uh, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman's book on killing. Highly recommended reading. Really seriously, you, you guys should, all of you should go read it about how the range at, what you, at which men kill each other affects their willingness to kill. And it affects their ability to human or dehumanize the other man at the other end. And it is not surprising to find out that the closer you get to the man you're going to kill, the less you want to kill him. Because he's a human being and you can see that. You can see his eyes. You can see the pain in his eyes when you, when you shoot him. Or, or worse still, when you gut him with a knife. You can hear the gasps of his dying breath. You can see the life leave his eyes. Whereas when you're an artillery man, 10, 15, 20, 30 kilometers behind the front line, and you're lobbing shells at somebody else, you don't see the guy you're killing. So what happens now in a world where you have automated helicopters that can kill infantry, drones that can drop shells on infantry. I have seen things from this war which I will never be able to unsee through the, the drone footage. I don't share it on my Telegram channel as a general rule. I very strongly avoid the war porn that so many other channels share around. I want to spare my audience the horror of this war, but I have seen these videos. I have seen men blown literally in half. Uh, just today I saw a video on that where you know, a, a badly wounded Ukrainian soldier is lying on the ground and a Russian drone uh, with a grenade attached to it f flew over him, directly over him. The, the drone operator dropped the grenade and it quite literally blew the man in half. It, it blew off his legs and all you saw was this hunk of bloody meat, but he was still moving. He was still moving, and you could see as the drone zoomed in closer to catch his dying moments. You could see his his eyes and his head was moving. Um, it was awful, and you could see in. I mean, I've seen other videos, for example, of uh, a, a badly wounded Russian soldier. Uh, he he was he, his his mates couldn't get to him. They couldn't medevac him in time. Um, he was lying in a foxhole, badly wounded, bandaged up. Ukrainian drone flew over him and he knew the drone was there and he made the sign of the cross, you know, um, top, bottom, right to left because he's an Orthodox, he was an Orthodox Christian. And, um, the drone dropped a grenade on him. And killed him. Uh, I, I've seen things that 
you know, you can't imagine how horrible they are. And bear in mind, these are videos from the front lines. I've, I've seen videos of men filming their own deaths. Like they're, they're shooting, uh, they're shooting at an enemy they can't see because the enemy is, you know, off screen, off camera somewhere, they're meters, dozens of meters away. And a guy gets hit and he goes down and you actually hear the life leave him. Uh, you hear him draw his last breath and the, the camera is just, it keeps running. Um, this is the nature of this war now. And this is something which Western militaries simply are not prepared to handle. We're a long way away still from the world in which you have robots fighting wars for you. That's not going to happen for many years yet. Does anybody remember a Bruce Willis movie called uh, Surrogate? Uh, Bruce Willis and uh, what's her name? The woman who was in um, uh, Gone Girl and Pride and Prejudice. Uh, it's, um, I forget. Uh, bloody hell. It's... Uh, where's, ah, Rosamund Pike, that's her, yes. Uh, with... Bruce Willis and I think Rosamund Pike in it, in which uh, you basically have life-sized human replicas, uh, surrogates, robots that are controlled by humans and which go into combat and the robots get killed. We're not in that environment. Uh, we're nowhere close to that environment and we won't be for many years because as powerful as artificial intelligence is, it is just a series of very, very powerful algorithms. That's all it is. You still need a human intelligence behind it to control it all, to oversee it. But we are very close to that world of um, machines taking over and slaughtering humans in industrial fashion at the behest of other humans. And that is what the Banderistan War has become. Uh, make no mistake, this is the return of industrial warfare. The Banderistan War is absolutely industrial scale warfare. It is massed armies killing each other in uh, attrition mode. Now, the Russians are doing it much better than the Ukrainians because the Russians actually have a doctrine of attrition and annihilation. And this goes back to the days of Marshal Tukhachevsky and uh, Alexander Svechin. Uh, Grandpa Grumpus talks about him all the time, and with good reason. Svechin and uh, von Clausewitz uh, really have this understanding of the need to annihilate an enemy's army and, and destroy an enemy's ability and means to fight. It is not coincidental, by the way, that von Clausewitz talked about this in Vom Krieger uh, because Clausewitz actually served with the Russian army. He did. Uh, he was not merely a German officer. He, he did not merely influence the Prussian military school. He also influenced and was influenced by the Russian approach to military uh, force and, and structure. A lot of people say Russia was a second-rate power. It never really had a great army. Anyone who says that has never studied Russian history, has never understood how quickly the Russian 
military adapted to um, innovations in war. There is a reason why the Russians call artillery the queen of the battlefield and the god of war. They adapted to it really fast, and they have been using it uh, with tremendous effect ever since, especially in this war. And they have adapted to the use of uh, robotic technologies in warfare very, very quickly. This is why if the United States is ever stupid enough and crazy enough to go to war with Russia, in the first month, I would say the United States would lose 40,000 men. Not killed, not, uh, not wounded, or not just casualties, but dead. 40,000 dead in a month. And I'm not joking about that. Uh, it's not just my assessment. I mean, there was uh, an assessment by, I forget exactly who, Alexander Mercurius talks about it in several of his recent videos. Uh, an assessment by something uh, to do with the Army War College, I think, where the author of the report basically said, if the United States went to war with Russia today in Eastern Europe, the U.S. would incur 3,600 casualties a day. Casualties. Just casualties. Never mind, I mean, that's uh, wounded and killed in action total. But 3,600 casualties every single day. Now, keep in mind, the Ukrainians, on their worst days, were suffering 800 dead every day. 800 dead that the Russians could verify and confirm. Which means they were probably suffering between 2,000 and 3,000 total casualties every day. And th th those kinds of casualty rates still have not broken the Ukraine army. The U.S. army, by contrast, is very casualty averse. And when the U.S. goes up against the Russian military, it's going to go up against the most battle-hardened, most technologically advanced, most uh, well-trained, well-equipped, uh, industrially-powered military anywhere in the world. And I'm not joking about that. It will be up against the world's most sophisticated air defense system, the world's most powerful uh, electronic warfare systems, the world's most experienced and combat-capable infantry and armor divisions. Uh, the, the Russians have abandoned the, the doctrine of the battalion tactical group. They've now switched back to old Soviet-style divisional formations, and they now have the men and the equipment to do it. So... They not only now have entire battalions capable of uh, massed fires, they have the infantry to back up the, the, the armor and the weaponry, and they have the drone warfare, so they have both offensive and defensive capabilities capable of neutering American air power, which is really the only thing the United States has in its arsenal that's capable of taking on the Russians. There are really only two areas where the U.S. can actually match Russia. One is its submarine fleet, particularly its nuclear navy, and the other is its air force. But the United States has, has invested enormous amounts of money in stealth technology, in this you know, trillion-dollar flying AWACS, the, the stupid F-35 nonsense. Uh, it's almost $2 trillion now, and the damn thing can't even fly properly. Well, what good is a $100 million aircraft going to be against an enemy that can spot it and shoot it down at a 300-kilometer range, 300-kilometer plus, actually, using a stealth fighter, the Su-57, 
which comes in at about 40% of the price and has the S70 Ochotnik Hunter drone accompanying it, which will have, uh, which will basically be carrying all the missiles that the Su-57 can't fit into its own internal missile base. We now know the Su-57 has been able to hunt and kill uh, air targets in Ukraine at ranges of 300 plus kilometers using the, R the R-37M missile. We know this has happened. We know the Russian air defense, the S-300s, the S-400s, can engage targets at ranges of 300 plus kilometers. We know the Russian A-50s can spot targets from miles and miles away. And we know that all of these systems communicate with each other. So it's not merely a system of robots. It's a system of systems that are all networked together. And that doctrine of net-centric warfare is something the Russians have embraced from very early days. This goes back to the P-700 Granit uh, anti-shipping missile, as Andrei Martyanov talks about in his second book, actually, which I've read. Uh, he talks about how the P-700, which was a supersonic uh, anti-shipping missile, could talk to all the other missiles launched and its home, you know, its launching ship, and could zero in on targets of opportunity and hit them in a very primitive fashion using network technology. But this was in the Soviet era. Now consider what's happening today where the Su-57s in the sky can communicate with the T-90s on the ground, can communicate with the S-400s in the rear, can communicate with the um, Musta, uh self-propelled howitzers, can communicate with the infantry commanders uh, on the battlefield, can communicate with the general staff back in Moscow. With, can communicate with a supercomputer that sits somewhere in Moscow. This is one of the world's most powerful supercomputers that does nothing but calculate and crunch numbers and run simulations all day long. This is a level of net centricity the United States does not have. And not only that, the United States does not have anything like Russian capabilities in standoff weaponry or in drone technology, not anymore. So we're looking at an environment of dehumanized mass killing, where if the U.S. has any brains whatsoever, any competence whatsoever, it will try to avoid a war with Russia because it will be destroyed. And the United States, being a nuclear-biased nation, will resort to the use of nuclear weapons sooner or later in that war. So it's a very, very worrying time. But it's also a time of great opportunity. I don't think we're looking at a, a true sort of Skynet-type situation. I do think you know, um, the the very fact that we have this sort of eye of Sauron looking out over the battlefield will actually be a great deterrent to these kinds of wars. I think the United States and NATO are looking at this war and thinking to themselves, holy shit, we can't afford this. We can't do this. Uh, we should never, ever go to war with Russia. And I think that's one of the, the aims of the special military operation is to impress upon NATO and upon the Americans the message that if you go to war with us, it will not be like Ukraine, a special military operation. It's very important to understand this. What you're seeing from the Russians right now is about 20% of their active military going in and beating the crap out of all of NATO, effectively. There is no other NATO power 
other than the United States, which has the capabilities that Ukraine had and which has the kind of weaponry and munitions and manpower that Ukraine had. The only people who come anywhere close are the Turks, and that's only because they have two million men in their overall military. But they don't have that number of tanks. They don't have that number of uh, infantry fighting vehicles, that, that kind of air force, nothing. And they can't go to war against a power like Russia. They're a very good fighting force, but make no mistake, the Turks have just about as long a history, actually a longer history of war, considerably longer history of war than the Russians do. But they've lost wars to Russia before. They don't want to repeat that experience. So the reality is the only people capable of fighting on that level are the Russians. The United States doesn't even come anywhere close. And I think the U.S. is is now beginning to discover that. So with the advent of all these new technologies, you're going to see, I think, a freezing of a lot of these mass-scale conflicts, this kind of mass killing. Uh, I just hope the lessons of Bandaristan will stick because otherwise, close to a million, well, 500,000 Ukrainian men, I'm pretty sure, could be as, as much as a million, uh, will have died for nothing. An entire generation of Ukrainians, an entire nation basically wiped out. 50,000 Russians, give or take, dead for no reason at all because the United States and its leaders were too stupid to figure out they are totally outmatched. That's, that's my take on it. Right, moving along. Uh, that's quite a long answer to the question, but I hope that uh, I did answer it. Okay, let's uh, go through some of the, the four or five other questions I got. Ambergris asked me a really good one. This is really cool. If you had to listen to only five rock bands, including all genres such as metal, etc., for the rest of your life, which would you pick? At least one has to be a new band debut last five years. If the offer was a million US dollars, would you do it? Okay, so it's actually yeah, a few questions in one. So, five bands for the rest of my life. Okay, Iron Maiden. So the first three are actually really easy. Has to be Iron Maiden as number one, because Iron Maiden is the greatest band of all time. There is no debate, no discussion on this. I'm not going to argue with anyone. It's just is it's, it's a fact, okay? So deal with it. Um, Second one would be Judas Priest, because as much as they are flawed and problematic in parts of the catalog, they're still a great, great band. Third one is Halloween, because they're the granddaddies of European power metal and you know, basically everything they did except for Pink Bubbles Go Ape and Chameleon is great. Pretty much everything. Uh, the fourth one, now this one could be tricky. Uh, I'm inclined to say Amon Amarth because I just really love particularly the sort of Twilight of the Thunder God uh, versus the world um, with Odin on our side era. Uh, with Odin on our side is just an absolutely incredible album. I mean, just brutal. So that's four. Now the fifth one will have to be a band in the last five years. And this is where it gets problematic because most of the bands I listen to they're 10, 15 years older or more. Okay. Um, hmm. The most, the best recent album that I've listened to is probably Vision Denied. Um, yeah, Vision Denied. Not Vision, 
uh, not Vision Divine, Vision Denied. Uh, Vision Divine is a different band. But if you look at uh, Vision Denied on uh, Encyclopedia Metallum, uh, these guys got started in 2020, and they released an album called Age of the Machine just this year, which I have listened to, and I think it's bloody awesome. I think it's a great album. I really enjoyed it. It's a sci-fi album, and uh, really, really like it a lot. So if it had to be them, I would say, if it had to be one band, I would say it'd be them. Um, I was going to say Windrose at some point, or of course Powerwolf, because I've, I love Powerwolf. <laughs> the goofiest band ever. The problem is Powerwolf dates back like 15 years, so can't do them. Uh, Windrose dates back, you know, uh, 2009, so almost uh, 15 plus years. Uh, Powerwolf is actually older than that, 2004. So, yeah, almost 20, jeez, 20 years of Powerwolf. Wow, that's a lot. Okay, so on to the second part of that question. Um, at, uh, if the offer was a million dollars USD, would you do it? Okay, here's where I'm going to lawyer up a little bit. So, if there was a return clause where I had to give back the money if I ever broke the terms, okay, here's what I would do. Suppose if I ever listen to any band other than those five for a year, I have to give back the money. So I would take the $1 million USD given to me and I would invest it in Russian coupon bearing securities or better yet, possibly Turkish or Argentinian coupon bearing securities. Probably Turkish actually because Argentina is going to default on its debt. We all know it. But let's take a look at the Turkish uh, central bank rate, uh, Turkey central bank rate. So the current Turkey interest rate is 40%, 40%. Okay. So I would invest in a Turkish one year bond at, you know, 40 plus percent interest, a million dollars due to be returned in one year's time. And then I would listen to nothing but basically Iron Maiden, Judas Priest, Halloween, Amon Amarth, and Vision Denied for that one year. And once the coupon drops on that, or the, the, the coupon and the principal's return on that bond, then I could do whatever the hell I like. Uh, I would return the $1 million uh, guilt-free. I would have $400,000 uh, to keep with me. And that would be my, uh, my sort of base. Uh, I would pay the taxes on that $400,000. Yeah, okay, that'd be really annoying. But I'd still have at least, uh, 200 grand plus for one year's worth of penance and, and, and sort of solitude, uh, and, and work. To me, that's a pretty damn good return on investment. And then I would take that 200 grand and invest it in something else that would return more. So, uh, you know, that's, that, that would be my plan. Um, so lawyered, uh, anybody who remembers the old, uh, infinite Elgin intensity videos may remember how he did it. Uh, since I am on sound, I, I, I can't say, I can't show you that, but you know, that is my answer to Ambergris's question. Okay. Ah, our native kraut. MK asks, uh, if you were in your mid-twenties and able to get a job in any industrialized zip code on the planet, 
which regions would you consider starting a family in? Uh, in which regions? Uh, that's my gra- internet grammar Nazi coming out. But anyway, areas with a bunch of Germanics in them preferred, but not necessary. Right. If you're in your mid-twenties and able to get a job in any industrialized zip code on the planet, preferably Germanic, uh, Kaliningrad. Why? Because it used to be the old German city of Königsberg. Uh, I'm pretty sure there are quite a lot of German-speaking people in that part of the world right now. Kaliningrad is going to be a very beautiful, very, I mean, from what I've heard, it is a very beautiful, very well-maintained, uh, well-run city, and it's Russian. So they're not full of fake and gay stuff the way the rest of Europe is. Uh, so that's that would be high on my list. Where else? Reasonably industrialized. Well, Germany's pretty much right out. Like the whole of Germany's right out because, you know, Germany. Um, if I were in my mid-twenties looking to raise a family, well, Singapore comes to mind, but you'd have to be paid an expat wage to do it. Singapore is an outstanding city. It's incredibly safe, very easy to live in. Uh, great transport links, fantastic education, amazing food, you know, very well maintained, beautiful part of the world, stupid hot and muggy and sweaty if you go outside, but you know, there's air conditioning everywhere. So that would be, I would say, very much uh, what I would want to do. But again, keep in mind, um, you have to be there as an expat and it's very difficult to live in Singapore if you're looking to get permanent residency or citizenship because they don't hand that out easily. I mean, that's very difficult. Japan also is a good one because, again, very homogeneous, very, very high uh, degree of culture, highly industrialized, highly efficient, well-managed, well-maintained, etc., etc. So those would certainly be high up on my list. And if I, I've never been to Japan. I have lived in Singapore. Uh, Australia is right out, full of migrants. New Zealand is, well, New Zealand is quite backward, actually. I mean, it's, don't get me wrong, I've got listeners from New Zealand. It's very, very nice people, lovely country. But New Zealand is not an industrialized country in the sense of it has powerful, a powerful industrial economy. It just doesn't. I'm sorry, it doesn't. It's an advanced first world country, yes, but it's not an industrial superpower. Let's just be clear about that. It's, it's a fact. Um, most of the United States is pretty much right out, uh, you know, the, the bits of the U.S. that are industrial are kind of decaying and, and decrepit in a lot of ways, unfortunately. I mean, there was some signs of life in some parts of it, but for the most part, the U.S. just, it doesn't do heavy industry anymore. And it's quite sad because it used to be, you know, the industrial heartland, the engine of the world. It no longer is. Um... But other than that, if you, if you're willing to, uh, move east, then there are plenty of cities in Russia in which hardworking young people can make a big difference. But emigrating to Russia is an absolute beast of a task. It's, see, the problem is the, the countries that have the strongest cultures and the strongest civilizations are also the ones that are the least interested in letting lots of other people invade and ruin it. Rightly so. Westerners, for some bizarre reason, I've never understood why, seem to be quite content to throw open the doors and let any, you know, idiot walk through and ruin the place. 
I, I don't get it. I, I, I just, I don't get why, but this is what Westerners are like. I really don't comprehend it. Um, but if you, if you're looking for a really powerful industrial city, um, or industrialized zip code, Tver, Perm, uh, Omsk, maybe not so much because it's in the Ural mountains, Chelyabinsk as well in the Urals. And these are kind of very heavily industrialized and not necessarily very much fun. If you're looking for a, a, you know, kind of, I need my space, if you're one of those sorts of people, and I am, then the Russian Far East is a good bet because there aren't very many people out there, but there are some spectacular cities. Uh, of course, they get beastly cold in winter. So if you're interested in minus 30 degrees Celsius in winter with, you know, Russian bears coming over to say hello in the evenings, uh, good luck, but it's really not my sort of thing. Um, those are, those are the kinds of places I would go to, uh, if it were up to me. Certainly to raise a family. Russia is a great country to do that because they actually have very pro-natalist policies. Oh, and Hungary as well. It, it, Budapest, uh, from what I understand, is a gorgeous city. But the Hungarians, again, are very fiercely defensive of their borders. Uh, they do not want far foreigners and uh, weird people running around, and again, rightly so. The Slovaks seem to be coming around to that point of view as well. And if you look at the areas of the former Soviet Union, which still have heavy industry, uh, or not just heavy industry, but sort of an industrialized, well-managed, well-maintained way of life. Avoid the Central Asian Republics for the most part. It's not great places. They're very sparsely populated. You know, just trust me, I've been to some of them. Oh, well, I've been to one of them. Not the, not the greatest places to be. But uh, certainly, uh, if you want a pleasant climate and a decent kind of standard of living, southern, southwest Russia, Voronezh, Aryol, Krasnodar, Krasnodar? Yeah, Krasnodar, not Krasnoyarsk, that's in Siberia. Krasnodar is in southwest. Uh, and anywhere in Crimea. Uh, I mean, Sochi, um, where else? Simferopol, uh, Sevastopol, uh, Yalta, all of these places. But Bear in mind, you have to learn the Russian language. You have to know uh, and understand Russian history and tradition. You have to be willing to acculturate to the Russians. They are not going to. Um, they are not going to make. They are not going to change their culture for you. And again, they're absolutely correct to say that. They demand that people who come to them, looking to integrate into their society, do so according to their rules. And that is a policy I absolutely support and agree with. Beyond that, mm, most of Europe is boned, so never mind. Uh, if you're in Europe, yeah, look, you elected these people. Uh, I, I had nothing to do with it. I, I, as far as I'm concerned, these people are crazy. I mean, they're incompetent, stupid, and crazy. Why the hell would you want these people leading your countries? But that's what Europeans have done, so... That's my answer to that one. Uh, Capios is back. Right. If you were to partner with someone for a content creation business on the internet, what would you consider first? 
I know that business partnerships are not recommended by many, but I still want to know your opinion. Okay, so this is a really good one. I hadn't really thought about this one too much. If it were content creation, in my case, hmm, this one, this one, this is quite tricky because for me, um, the content creation would have to um, sit in the realms that I'm good at. So my knowledge areas are in finance, risk management, teaching, geopolitics, and sort of online coaching, uh, if, it, if you can call it that, uh, and consultancy. So if... If I were to start up an online content creation business, it would probably be in the realm of online coaching or consultancy for specific niches like, I don't know, um, digital payments and how to, how to make the most out of uh, emergent technologies in, in financial services that drive innovation such as blockchain because as it happens i have some expertise in that area i'm not going to go into the details but i do know something about it um, and i would market those services out as a consultant to uh, as a as a subject matter expert and a consultant and an associate to um to other interested companies uh however in my case, I think I would probably need a sales and marketing partner because these are not my natural strengths. While I can do marketing and I can do pretty PowerPoint presentations, I hate doing it. And my PowerPoint skills aren't that great because uh, I can't bloody stand it. And actually, my sense of color and uh, shape is not the best because look, uh, my background is mathematics. So my approach is very direct, very very much focused on uh, the message and on getting people the information they need. I'm very good at structuring things in a logical and orderly fashion, but I need help in selling it. So if it were me, in a more general sense, how would I set up an online you know, content creation business on the internet? If it were me, I would always look at the, the things that I'm good at. And so... It, in, in fact, I just did this exercise a couple of days ago uh, with one of the people at work. Uh, go look up a concept called Ikigai. I-K-I-G-A-I. -I -I, Ikigai. And it's one of those, you know, bizblab concepts that gets bandied about, about how, you know, how do you find your purpose, your telos, your potential, your true calling in life, etc., etc. It focuses around four fields. What do you love? What are you good at? What can you be paid for? And what is good for society? And when you find the intersection of all those four things, and it's not easy to do, but once you've planned it out and you've found it, that is your, your point of maximum harmony with your inner and outer worlds and you know, all this good stuff and whatever, hippy-dippy stuff. But it's important to understand. The idea is to enjoy and love what you do and get paid for it and have a good time doing it and also um, do something that is of great benefit to society. So 
that's how I'd start by looking at what I'm good at, recognizing my limitations in building a business around it, and then finding a way to build a business with someone who is good at the things I'm bad at, but also shares that same drive and vision for a specific thing. Uh, if I look at uh, Kyle Mao, uh, he's, he's a friend of mine actually, uh, and we used to know him as Kyle Trouble back in the day. He and I have done podcasts together, the Troublesome Truths podcast, and he's a really nice guy. He's a bit, quite a bit younger than me. He's got a Ukrainian wife and a young girl, I think. And now he lives in Poland, uh, last time I checked. I'm not giving anything away, I mean, let me be clear. I mean, he, he makes all this information public in his newsletter, so this is, I am not by any means doxing or, or giving stuff away. This is all public information. I want to make that very, very clear. Uh, but he and his family now live somewhere in Europe, no idea exactly where. Uh, and he has started a number of online business ventures through this process of, and one of the ones that he did was Silo uh, Oil, Cello, whatever it is. His idea was to create the, the Macallan sort of fine, finest Croatian olive oil brand imaginable, the, the Macallan equivalent of olive oil, or the olive oil equivalent of Macallan. And he found a business partner um, who had a tied up to a family farm, which produced this olive oil, and he was going to be the, the face and the marketing guy and you know, so on. The danger with partnerships, as Kyle found out, is sometimes the partners have differing visions, and that creates huge problems. Uh, it certainly did for him. So just be aware that if you enter into a partnership with somebody in a content creation business, you damn well better be ready for what's coming because it's like being married, but the divorce will be 10 times worse uh, when money is involved and there would be substantial amounts of money involved. Okay. Uh, next, Supreme Cannon had a couple of questions for me. So um, in the main post, there are four questions, but there are a couple of other questions that came up. Right. Uh, from Supreme Cannon. Supreme Cannon, by the way, is one of the best contributors, hands down, of the entire channel. He's absolutely hilarious. Uh, you know, big shout out to him because he's, he's a, he's a Kanakistani, unfortunately for him. Uh, he lives under Castro's bastard's misbegotten rule in Canada. And, uh, I, again, I mean, this is not news. This is like, it's stuff that's shared in the channel, so I'm not giving anything away. Um, but, he he's I mean he's got by far the best wit and the the, the funniest stuff like the Tyroniums thing that, <laughs> that was all him. <laughs> so anyway, um, right. The U.S., China, EU, and U.K. have all reportedly all have made major financial problems. I have no background in finance and it's a deeper machinery. So, which domino do you suspect will topple first, and would it bring them all down? Uh, right. The U.S. will topple first. And it will bring down the EU, the UK, and part of China. The reason why is just because the US has by far the biggest um, mountain of bad debt. The Chinese are actively moving to shrink down this pile of toxic assets. And they are actively moving to kill off corruption. I mean, uh, Xi Jinping is very clearly uh, pushing to rein in the financialization of the country and is seems to be succeeding actually 
The United States, by contrast, has some extremely serious problems with debt uh, to a much greater societal degree than China does. Yes, the Chinese have a serious issue with bad debt from all these people buying second homes when they shouldn't be. Yes, that's true and absolutely the case. However, uh, the Chinese don't quite have the same issue the U.S. does where you have basically big financial companies buying up housing all over the country and then using it to rent out homes to the rest of the population. They don't have the student loan problem the United States does where you can't default on student loans. They don't have the zombie company issue quite to the same degree that the U.S. does where entire sectors of the economy are just propped up through Federal Reserve money printing. I mean, it's slightly inaccurate to call it that because the Federal Reserve creates the money, but the Treasury actually prints it. But anyway, that's, uh, you know, technicality. Uh, in my view, the next major financial crisis will come from the United States, and it always comes down to debt. See, I'm going to try to keep it as simple as possible, but basically what will happen is the credit creation machine will run into some serious problems where the amount of money required just to pay off the interest on the existing debt will be so great that there's no productive capacity behind it. So the only thing anyone can do is print money. That's already happening. I mean, we already know the interest on the debt existing right now is 900 plus billion dollars, almost a trillion dollars every year. That's more than the United States spends on defense every year. The U.S. already has a $34 trillion debt. So every year they're adding debt on top of that plus interest on that debt, which is all financed by debt. What will happen, therefore, is at a certain point, the rest of the world will realize, and it's again, it's already happening, that there are only a few a handful of ways out of this gigantic mess the United States has created for itself. One is default. Well, the U.S. can't do that because if it does, it craters literally the whole world. One is money printing, hyperinflation, devaluation of the currency, which would export that inflation around the world. Well, other central banks are already moving to buy gold to hedge against that. And they're already moving to de-dollarize their balance sheets and move away from dollars and move to national currencies. And one is asset confiscation which is exactly what I think the United States is going to do. Because once it becomes clear the rest of the world is no longer interested in accepting dollars, those dollars are going to start flooding back into the United States. At that point, the rest of the world will have become decoupled substantially, not completely, but substantially from the U.S. China cannot decouple completely from the U.S., but Russia largely has and will be okay. The Russian financial system is almost entirely domestic in terms of its balance sheets, but the rest of the G7, uh, certainly all of the EU, is tied into the American financial system completely and totally. So China will suffer very badly because its major export market will crater. Yes, its economy will go into deep recession possibly depression. Russia will be more or less okay because it, it's, while it is an export-driven economy, it's the demand for energy will never go away. And Russia is the world's commodities superpower. No matter what, 
the Russians will always have demand for their energy at some level. They may experience a substantial drop-off in demand, so they will run into problems, but actually they've got an incredibly healthy fiscal situation. China will get hurt, no question. But it will be the US that collapses. And when that happens, not if, but when, because all empires always collapse, and they always collapse from overextension and societal rot, the collapse will trigger a a need to fill in that hole left by the debt. Where's that going to come from? The assets, the retirement assets of American citizens and anyone who has a 401k in America. That includes me, by the way. I have a, you know, most of my assets are tied up in the US. So one of the things I need to do is kind of decouple from the US myself and move all of those assets somewhere else. The problem is if you withdraw early, you face a gigantic tax penalty. So that's never fun. But be that as it may, um, the US will crater, the UK will, the UK and the EU will follow very rapidly. The UK's financial system is completely tied into the US because of what happened as a legacy of Bretton Woods. So is the EU. Uh, the euro will essentially cease to matter as a currency. It already is ceasing to matter as a currency in global currency flows. 93 plus percent of total transactions on SWIFT now have the USD as one of the currency pairs. The other is almost always the e, the euro or the pound. So, yeah, I mean, and uh, renminbi as well, of course. Um, everything else is basically irrelevant. So once the US craters, everything else follows in the West. And that is why I don't think Europe has any clue how bad things are going to get. It is going to get truly horrifying. Right. Uh, another one from Supreme Canon. Uh, okay. This is a good one. Uh, I have a strong suspicion that in the US, 2024 will be 2020 on heavy steroids, civil unrest, fires, possibly mass terror attacks and sabotage this time around. Is that what you see or do you see something else? Curious as to your thoughts. Yes, I see all of that and much, 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 much worse. I'm sorry to say this, I really am. I don't want to think this way about the United States, but this is the reality. The US is facing uh, coming apart in a way that I don't think anybody really fully understands or can anticipate. Uh, there's a book that I read by, well, a number of such books on Amazon, but um, let me see if I can go find the actual title, amazon.com, inevitably, Amazon, Amazog, as I call them. Um, right, the Second American Civil War by somebody other. Uh, there's a whole bunch of these books on, on Amazog, but, um, right, let me see, it's in my Kindle list somewhere. Uh, Anyway, uh, the point is, there's, there's a book by some chap named, well, a Polish name, I think, uh, who talked about uh, how the Second American Civil War would unfold. And he talked about uh, how America is actually divided along not, it's no longer north-south lines the way it was 
the last time in, in, in the war between the states. It's much deeper than that. And I agree with, with that assessment. Uh, it's, it's genuinely frightening when you think about it because we're looking at a level of crazy uh, that we haven't seen in a very, very long time. Uh, we're looking at, you know, truly hideous degrees of social unrest and kind of coming apart between all the different bits and pieces of society. And it's going to be unlike anything we've ever seen. We are looking at a, a situation in which it's race against race. It's urban against suburban and rural. It's black against white and Hispanic against black and Asian against Hispanic and so on and so forth. All of that is going to happen. And whether we like it or not, it's, it's just, it's going to happen. Um, we don't have to like it. It's just the truth of things. I'm sorry to say, but, um, you know, it's, it's going to get very, very ugly and it is going to result in fracturing of the United States into multiple, I think, countries. Now, Lieutenant Colonel Tom Cratton, with whom I've had a number of interactions in the past on this subject, whom I respect immensely, and I've interviewed him. Uh, it's uh, Didactic Mind, episode 50. It was an interview with, uh, with uh, Tom Cratton himself. He strongly disagrees with my take on this, which is fine. I mean, he's free to his opinion, and I'm free to mine. His argument is America will stay one country, but it will require the mass slaughter of about 10 million people. Uh, I think he's right about the 10 million number. Indeed, I think it's actually going to be a lot worse. Um, I'm not advocating for this, mind you. I'm not saying this is a good thing. It's categorically not. It's a horrible thing. This is not good in any way, shape, or form. But um, getting dealing with that level of carnage will require a level of equivalent brutality on the side of the authorities that I don't think America can tolerate. And I do think it will result in, uh, you know, a, a level of, of horror that we simply... Ah, here we go. The Coming Civil War. Finally, I found the damn book. The Coming Civil War by Tom Karczynski and Jeff Winston. Sorry. Um... Why is this A? It's already in my account. Anyway, uh, this, this is a, a very, very good book, um, which I read, you know, a, a while back and I thought was seriously good. It was uh, no wonder I purchased it in 2019. I'll put a link to it in the, 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 the thingy. Uh, the, um, the, what's it called? The, the description box and this is a, a, a very good depiction of what could happen. As, as I said, it, it comes down to that whole issue of uh, who fights whom. And it's, it is going to be an internecine fratricidal struggle of a nature we haven't seen before. So it is going to result in the fracturing of the country, in my view. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Kratner thinks that's wrong. He thinks the United States will stay as one country, but I, I just don't see it. I, I think the country has become so divided and so, so angry 
and so full of hatred towards each other that no reconciliation is possible any longer. And I think, unfortunately, increasing numbers of Americans are coming to that very same conclusion. I'm sorry to say that, but that, that does, seem to be, does seem to be the truth. Uh, all you have to do is look at how black America stands apart from white America, and it's very simple and easy to understand. They're two different worlds, uh, with two different societies. And that's, that's just uh, the fact of the matter. Right. Uh, last question, I think. I do believe, yes. Von Luck, uh, former, uh, he's a veteran actually, so uh, thank you, sir, for your service. And um, he had, shall we say, a very bad experience with the military for reasons. We won't get into them. But um, how would you have fixed Halo 4 and 5? Okay, very good one. So Halo 4 is actually my favorite Halo game to play, believe it or not. I think it's got the best plot, the actual best plot out of any of the Halo games. Yes, okay, I know it's stupid, fine, or whatever. It's not as good as Halo 3 to play through. Halo 3 is just magnificent. It's just an incredible game. The best FPS FPS game of all time, in my opinion. Halo 4... I think restored a lot of the old Halo combat evolved type of feel. There were flaws in it. I mean, the Promethean Knights, they're just the bullet sponges. That's all they are. They're really annoying to fight. It's not difficult to fight them once you learn, but it takes a while to figure it out because they just, they absorb so much damn punishment. Uh, but once you figure it out, it's really not that bad. I really enjoy playing Halo 4. I, I think it's a great game to play. I really like it. The major problem with Halo 4 was always the fact that you had to study all of this backstory and lore just to understand what the hell was going on. Without it, you you wouldn't have a clue. You had to read the Greg Bear trilogy, you know, um, Halo Primordium, Halo uh, Cryptum Primordium, Silentium. You had to read all of the. You had to browse through all of the the. 343 Industries lore on the website, and you had to watch videos, and you had to see this, and watch that, and listen to this, and, and I just got to the point where I was like, well, guys, I just want a damn story that makes sense. Without all that lore in your head, none of it, none of the plot, none of what Cortana was saying, none of what the Didact was saying, you're like, who is this Didact guy? Why is he a threat? Why is he a problem? None of it made sense. You couldn't understand what the hell was going on without all of this backstory and all of this kind of mucking about with the lore. Uh, that was the big problem with Halo 4, was the fact that you had to go through it with a steep learning curve just to play the damn game. Now, once you started playing the game, it was great. It was really, uh, you know, intense, thrilling, true action. The Scorpion tank sequences were fantastic. The Covenant was loads of fun to fight. Um, the weapons and tactics were great. Uh, I'm still, to this day, a huge fan of the DMR. The weapons felt meaty and powerful. Uh, the armor abilities were really cool. The Spartan Ops campaigns, uh, add-ons were great fun. I really enjoyed them. Uh, I'm not a multiplayer guy, so I don't care in the slightest about war games, but uh, Spartan Ops was fantastic. Uh, I, I'm still pretty annoyed they only stopped it after one season, which was stupid, but you know they just didn't have the budget. And I think the... The fundamental problem with 343 Industries is they promise a lot and they, they, they stop their execution at about 80% at most. 
And this is the problem with Halo 5. Now, Halo 5 was a colossal letdown. I'll be the first to admit that. My initial review of Halo 5 was euphoric. And I've since admitted this openly. I've said, you know, I, I gave it way too much credit. I did. Uh, that's a fact. Halo 5 was a very, very deeply flawed game. Uh, partly because so much material is cut from it, as we now know. They, they really rushed the game into production. And as such, they cut a lot of the good stuff that would have redeemed it. Halo 5 really pissed me off in large measure because you spent 80% of your time not playing as the Master Chief. You spend it playing as Spartan Locke, which I think is just dumb. Like, what the hell? Why? Uh, Spartan Locke has all the charisma and, and kind of, uh, interest of wet cement, in all honesty. I mean, Mike Coulter is a great actor, but Spartan Locke, like, really? Come on. There's nothing interesting about that. Then there was all the social justice BS that came into the game. Two female Spartans, two male ones, like two female Spartans, Holly Tanaka, who can do everything, everything a man can do and, and more. And it's like, what's her name? Uh, Olympia Vale. Even worse in some ways. She's badass female warrior. She's the intelligence officer and she speaks fluent Sangheili and all this. I'm like, I don't have time for this crap. Um, I really hated that. I, the gameplay was not great. The gameplay mechanics were not fun. Um, I didn't like the way the weapons felt or sounded. Uh, all of the human weapons just sounded way spongier, you know, like dull and muted. Whereas in Halo 4, the DMR had this really sharp, powerful sound to it. In Halo 5, the same DMR just sounded wet. Uh, the, the assault rifle sounded weak. Whereas in Halo 4, it sounded like a proper submachine gun. Uh, it was, it was bad. It was just, it was bad. Uh, it was by far the worst of the Halo games. I never want to play it again. I'll be very happy if I never play it again. And the team dynamics didn't work. I mean, they got the guy from Star Wars Republic Commando who, who created the combat, you know, player system in SWRC to do it for Halo 5. And it sucked. It was nowhere near as good. The squad commands were useless. Your squad was useless. What was the point? It, it, I mean, there was so much wrong with it fundamentally as a game. I don't think it could have been fixed. But if you wanted to fix it, start with the plot. Actually create, you know, a proper plot end to end that like works. Continue with the gameplay mechanics. Give it a real meaty feel to it. Get rid of Spartan Lock and focus only on the Master Chief. Uh, give it some real weapons, some real teeth, some real oomph and, and firepower, and make it about the halos, and make it about something genuinely threatening. The Guardians were not threatening, not really. I mean, and the plot was impossible to decipher. I was like, what, what is going on? Nobody knows. Nobody has a clue. Um, yeah, uh, there, there, was, there was a lot wrong with a lot wrong with Halo 5. They, they would have been better just killing off that game and moving straight to Halo Infinite, in all honesty. Uh, because Halo Infinite actually ties in with The Banished from Halo Wars 2 and with the... Uh, whatever they were called. The Uplifted, the... the I, I don't know. The, the Reek... The, Whatever, this is how bad Halo 5 was. I don't even remember the plot. 
uh, whatever it was that Cortana called the, the, the AIs who rebelled against humanity. That was a good tie-in. Halo 5 was just a disaster, start to finish. It was terrible. Uh, and, it, I mean, just, just get rid of it. You know, don't consider it canonical, move on. Fundamentally, the problem with 343i, as I said, is they promise a lot, they only deliver at most 80% of it, and then they leave all this technical debt behind, which they say they'll fix in future patches and plugs. Why? Just give us a proper game to begin with, and stop with all this microtransaction nonsense. Stop with um, needing to constantly download more DLC. Just give us a proper game. Give us an end-to-end -end experience where we can play with our friends, we can enjoy the sci-fi universe, and we can enjoy a continuous sort of plot which doesn't require constant retconning, which is exactly what 343i is doing right now. Uh, the, the, the Halo universe in Halo F Infinite is different from the Halo universe in Halo 5, is different from what it was in Halo 4, is different from what it was in Halo 3. There's no continuity. There's, it's, it's just jagged and jumpy, and it doesn't make sense. So, right. I've rabbited on for quite long enough. My voice is giving out on me because I was out for a couple of beers with a friend earlier on today, and I am tired. Right, so I'm going to wrap it up here. Uh, thank you very much for listening. Uh, really, really enjoyed the questions. Thank you to all of my loyal subscribers and readers for sending them in. We'll do another Ask Didact Anything Day sometime in the new year, uh, and we'll see if my voice holds out then. Uh, it's not doing too well right now, but uh, in the meantime, uh, stick around for my, I hope, Christmas Day podcast on the 25th. I hope. We'll see if I'm able to do that. And uh, I wish you uh, good health, uh, happy holidays, uh, a Merry Christmas if I don't get a chance to talk to you before then. But by all means, please like, comment, share, and subscribe. subscribe and make sure you uh, latch on to the Telegram channel if you haven't done so already. And uh, I will catch you, you know, whenever. Uh, that's it from me. Thank you very much, brothers. And I will get you on the next podcast. Strength and honor, brothers. Didact out.